This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is somebody who I know for a very long time. Her name is Lizanne Saunders, and she's the chief market strategist for a little outfit called Charles Schwab that is running several trillion dollars in client assets. Way back when I began doing media, the very first television show I did was with a gentleman named Larry Kudlow. And it was done in this tiny little hole of a studio in Englewood, New Jersey. Not the big, giant, modern studio that you know today, but it was really kind of a small office park. And I had showed up probably uh, a little early because of traffic getting there from Manhattan. And while I was in the green room waiting to go on the air, it was live to tape over the course of an hour, I started drinking Diet Coke, and the next thing you know, I finish two cans of soda, and I get up to go to the bathroom when the producer comes in and says, okay, let's go, it's live. But I have to, no, no, it's now, it's live. So I'm hyper-caffeinated. I'm sitting at this round table. There's Larry Kudlow to my left, which is an unusual place for him to be because he's usually to everybody's right. And there directly across from me is Lizanne Saunders. And a friend who had been doing television for a long time gave me a little bit of advice. He had said, pick something to focus on and don't dart your eyes and don't look nervous. Just focus on that one thing. And Lizanne began speaking and she had the whitest teeth I had ever seen. She explains how her teeth got so white during our interview. The secret is no coffee. But anyway, during the show, I just fixated on this Oh my God, look at those white choppers. She's so articulate, she's so beautiful, and her teeth are so damn white. It's, it's incredible. So that, that was my first experience doing television. I managed not to throw up on the glass table, which was a genuine possibility. I know these days, uh, my, many of your favorite TV pundits look so comfortable and casual on screen. The first time you do it, it's kind of a nerve-wracking experience. Anyway, I had a great time chatting with Liz. She has an amazing background from Marty Zweig, who is a legend on Wall Street, to Louis Rukeyser, now to Charlie Schwab. I mean, talk about being blessed with working with amazing people. Uh, she has had just an unusual background and not what you typically expect. Never really ran into the old boys club, never really ran into the sort of stereotypical misogynistic Wall Street ways that we've heard about over the years. She considers herself very fortunate, and there have been several of our other female guests who have referenced her as, you know, a, a um, one of the pioneers who basically cleared a path for them to become strategists and analysts and others. So without any further ado or me babbling on, here's my conversation with Charles Schwab's Lizanne Saunders. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Lizanne Saunders. She is the Chief Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. Liz, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks, Barry. So Liz and I go way back. In fact, the very first television appearance I ever did you were the other guest with uh, Larry Kudlow about a uh, hundred years ago. Was was it 
Cudlow and Company, or was that yes. actually Cudlow and Kramer? No, it was Cudlow and Company. It was Cudlow and Company. It was Company. that far back. So, which which was before Cudlow Report, right? Was that the I think Larry's... it was after. I don't remember. I think it went Cudlow and Kramer, Cudlow and Company, and then the Cudlow Report. They, they were changing it constantly. <laughs> before we digress too far, let me give you a little bit of background as to who my guest is. She was named Smart Money's Power 30 list of most influential people on Wall Street, one of the most one of the 25 most powerful women in in finance by American Banker and she was a regular panelist and actually was a guest host on PBS's Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the real basics. How did you get into the financial services industry? You know, it was a little bit of a fluke. I uh, went to undergraduate school at University of Delaware. Go, go uh, Hens, is go that Blue right? Hens, yep. Mm-hmm. Go Blue Hens. Uh, home of uh, Flacco and Gannon and some other uh, notables. Mm-hmm. And I had a, well, I started with what was effectively a double major in economics and political science, which ultimately became a major in international relations. Not that I had any idea what I wanted to do at the time with that. Thought about going to graduate school right after undergraduate school. For international relations? No, it would have been for political science. Oh, really? But then I thought, I took my GREs, then I thought, what am I doing? Um, Mm -hmm. Why am I going to full-time to school again, not knowing what I want to do. So I put that on hold. I said, let me let me go up to New York. I knew I wanted to live in and be in New York and just hit the pavement. So had grandparents living at the time. My family's from Brooklyn. So went up, lived with my grandfather for a couple of weeks and reached out to a couple of headhunters that we knew that did entry-level positions and interviewed at every variety of firm, marketing firms, ad agencies, Wall Street firms. And There's something just clicked about this interview I had with the Zweig Avatar organization, and I had uh, developed some familiarity with Marty Zweig during my college years, so I was a little bit starstruck, really liked the people, liked the size of the firm, liked their willingness and interest in the past at promoting from within, so I started there, and, and I was there for 13 years and went to business school at night. Uh-huh. So so let's talk a little bit about Marty Zweig. Yeah. For the youngins who are listening who may not know who he was, Zweig was really a legend on Wall legend, Street. Legend, truly a legend. And and I I was introduced to Marty and then interestingly Louis Rukeyser and Wall Street Week during college when one of my TAs for a I think a macroeconomics course suggested watching Wall Street Week on Friday nights as a good way half hour before going out at night before starting to drink to get a recap of what happened that week. So on in other Wall words, Street. you would you would watch Rukeyser and then you would have to get a drink. And Is then that I what would no. Well, then I would go out and uh, and have a different kind of fun. Do do what college students do. And Marty had been a regular panelist really from the show's inception mm-hmm. in the early 1970s. So that was how I became familiar with Marty and then joined in 1986, which to your point, he was he was already godlike in the business, had uh, one best-selling book under his belt, had, was writing those Zweig forecasts, which Hulbert had ranked the number one uh, newsletter. He had Zweig Domina Partners, which was one of the first hedge funds. He had uh, branded mutual funds. Uh, and he was he was really iconic even at that point. And and for people who still may not know who he is, go to YouTube and Google Marty Zweig, Rukeyser, 1987. October 16th, 1987. The, a week before the crash. The Friday before. It was Friday. That's Friday right. Before? It was the week before they broadcast that Friday, but it was recorded. No, that we, was it that we day? would record that day. Yeah. And, and he basically explains why after being 
fairly constructive all year, pretty much flipped and said, I'm really concerned yes. about the state of this market, and I think it's set up for a, a serious, serious correction. He said crash. Did he say crash? He said, Is that what it was? Yeah. And then on Monday, it was Black it, Monday. And and not only did he suggest that a crash was coming, he laid out very precisely what he thought the next few days thereafter would look like. The retest of the lows and then a massive rebound. And, you know, we were a tactical asset allocation firm, market timing firm, and we had been effectively fully invested in equities leading into the peak in August and then started to trim back exposure. And we're only about 20% invested on the eve of the crash. And then the day after the crash, we started buying. So here I am, 22 years old, brand new in the business, thinking, well, what's the big deal? You just figure out before when the market's gonna crash, get out, and then everything goes on sale, get back in. Done, what could be easier, right, that's it. piece of cake. What are all these people complaining (laughs) about? Volatility. My naivete assumed that 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 was something uh, many could do easily, and we know that's not the case. That's so fascinating. You know, Dave Rosenberg, Mm -hmm. who I know you know, know, tells the story of his first day in the private sector after having been a government economist was essentially that Monday. And he just walked around astonished at at the sheer turmoil and panic. It was really incredible. But you had a very different experience. We had a different experience because we weren't facing massive losses in client portfolios. We weren't looking at the potential demise of the firm. Quite the contrary. You know, we had so nailed it. And I, I love to use the, the term we, we now as if I had anything to do with it at 22 years old. But it was such it was such a boom for everything Marty did and and the the success of our firm and performance that year that I had a very different perspective than a lot of people. To, to say the least, we're speaking with Liz Ann Saunders of Charles Schwab. When we continue our conversation, we'll discuss the role these days of women on Wall Street. You're listening to Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Liz Ann Saunders. She is the chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab, which these days is running how much money? Uh, well, we have client assets of about two and a half trillion. Not too shabby. Not too shabby. And um, you also team. have a number of divisions where you're managing money directly yourselves, So, correct? yes, personally. Uh, we made an acquisition about four years ago of what at the time was called Windward Investments, now called Windhaven Investments. It's a global tactical asset allocation firm uh, managing via ETFs, uh, model-driven, and uh, I joined the team as chair of the investment committee last June, in addition to my Chief Investment Strategist role at Schwab. So does the experience with Marty help you uh, it with It does. That in fact, when when we were in the early stages of, of disseminating the, the change and the information about me joining the team, there was this assumption that the main reason why I was tapped for this role was because I was known in the, the retail world, certainly among our investors, and that it would be an easy transition without a lot of people realizing that my background through my 13 years at Swag Avatar was in tactical asset allocation model driven. In fact, the founder of uh, of Windhaven, Steve Cucchiero, when putting together the model many, many, many years ago and writing the white paper associated with how the model looks at asset classes and makes its decisions, it, he actually cited uh, Marty in a couple of, oh, uh, of occasions, particularly the famous line of Marty's, the phrase he coined, which is, don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the Fed. And there have been people fighting the Fed this entire, this entire cycle. Time. I can't begin to count how often 
I see an email about the Fed's doing this and that, and well, okay, but the market's up 206%. So what you're saying is this hasn't happened yet. This What you're fearing certainly hasn't happened, right. and the response is always, just you wait. Well, it's six years. It's, it's 206%. A, how long do you want me to wait? Really? Right. I, uh, Anybody who listened to your advice has either lost their money or been fired. You right. you can't, as a professional, you just can't ignore that sort of move. You can't. Now, I'm also, though, I guess in a, in a bit of a middle camp in that absolutely don't fight the Fed and their provision of liquidity and monetary conditions absolutely is always an important driver behind uh, moves in, in the equity market. But I also am not in the camp that believes it's only been three rounds of quantitative easing right. and ZERP that has been the support under the stock market. I think many of the other traditional fundamentals have also been support. So I don't know that you would have gotten the same power and and magnitude of gain and consistency of, of performance had it not been for the Fed, but it's one of many conditions that have allowed the market to do what it's done. So let's let's go over some of those as long as, as, as we're going down this path. Let's talk a little bit about earnings, right? Yep. right? We saw an absolute earnings collapse. They came snapping back. Are earnings supportive of this sort of uh, rally? Our earnings are up, very consistent with what the appreciation in the market has been looking at past cycles. And you've had valuation expansion off of the, you know, the epic low in, in valuations this time actually post-dated the 2009 low. You ultimately got the low yeah. in PEs in 2010, just because the earnings cycle doesn't always match the market cycle. Earnings course. accelerated at that point faster than the market. Right. So despite a rally, PE ratios actually it, it, fell. Markets went up and made stocks look cheaper, which not only bizarre. that, but corporations have been such huge buyers of their own stocks too. I often get the question because I talk a lot about investor trends and investor sentiment mm -hmm. and the persistent skepticism by individual investors and the lack of interest in the market and very weak mutual fund flows, all of those facets that we look at all the time. Then I get asked, okay, well, it's obviously hasn't been the individual that's been the big buyer. Has it been the hedge funds? Has it been the big institutions? Where you're not seeing that in droves either. Hedge fund net long exposure has not gone stratospheric really during this entire bull market. And, and we've so seen it's that corporations. we've seen that in hedge fund performance. They've right. performance dramatically is, underperformed specifically because they didn't have enough US equity. And exposure. specifically in the last couple of years. So even this many years into a rip roaring bull market, there has been this pervasive skepticism where we have seen consistent buying and has been the most powerful buyer supporting this bull market has been companies themselves buying back their own stocks. So, so do you track the number of shares or the dollar amount? How significant is corporate share buybacks to, to the underlying rally? I think it's been, it's certainly not the entire uh, piece of it, but I think it uh, uh, in terms of buying interest in the market, if you look at the various faction, traditional pension funds, mm -hmm. um, other you know mutual funds, uh, hedge funds, even high-frequency trading firms, they're in and out all the time, or the the big whammy, the individual investor. By far, it's corporations that have been the most consistent uh, buyer. My colleague, Josh Brown, calls that the, the relentless bid, the combination of asset allocation models, which just buy every time money flows in, the share buybacks that are going out there. And, you know, people forget we've still been in a relentless bond bull market. And every time there's a Rebalance, that's money that flows out of bonds into equities. It's been amazing. It has been amazing. So so let's let's continue along this this path before we get into 
um, the role of women on Wall Street. Maybe we'll save that for a little later. Let's talk a little bit about ETFs versus passive investing. I know Schwab has a number of different mm -hmm. funds they manage. How significant is this move towards passive and ETFs. So I, I think what we're seeing at Schwab probably is is fairly consistent with the broader industry. I think we represent obviously a good chunk of the uh, of the industry, but at the end of, of last year, ETFs that were custodied at Schwab uh, amounted to about $230 billion, but traditional mutual funds were $1.1 trillion. Really? So it's there's a still a big, yes. Now wow. the growth rate of ETFs is much higher than mm -hmm. the growth rate of mutual funds. There's still positive growth rates, but the growth rate is is greatly exceeded in ETFs than than uh, than mutual funds. But mutual funds aren't going away anytime soon. And I think the shift between active and passive, to some degree, tracks a market cycle. When you're in a fairly consistent, low drama equity U.S. centric equity bull market like we've been in the last several years. That tends to have investors shift more toward passive strategies. And we actually think that there is a home for both in portfolios, that, that a lot of investors probably should be taking a more passive approach, uh, in indexing to uh, what, whatever, you know, whether it's broad market indices or if they want to take more of an endowment approach to their portfolios and have asset allocation across asset classes that historically were not that accessible ETFs allow them that. However, when you get into a less highly correlated, more volatile market period, like I would argue we are in the beginning of now, that's when you start to see some active strategies start to do a little bit better. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Lizanne Saunders. She is the chief strategist at Charles Schwab. And when we were talking earlier, I mentioned that you had been named one of the 25 most powerful women in finance by American banker because of how you bench press really Or maybe because there's powerful. only 25 of us in is, finance. <laughs> is that, is it, it sometimes feels that way. It sometimes feels so that way. So I'm going to give you a quote that I really liked from Michelle Myers, mm -hmm. one of the other few women we've had on the show, uh, and the, the first being uh, Sheila Baer of the FDIC. Mm -hmm. But Michelle Myers said, had cited the, quote, lack of women at the top of the industry as a challenge for women in finance. Do you agree with that? So my view has always been, from my perspective and the career path I have chosen in this business, being a woman has actually been a huge advantage. But my chosen career path was not ultimately to be the CEO of a major investment bank. So I think if if I was trying to climb a ladder to that type of senior management position, I probably would have a lot of bruises on my head from the glass ceiling. It's just not something I have encountered. And, and that's what I try to impart to young women who I speak with. Just in the last week, I've spoken at two universities. My alma mater graduate school, as well as my son's current college right now, spoke to two groups of uh, of women there and have encouraged them that there are great opportunities for uh, women on Wall Street. And I think the reason why it's increasingly important going forward is that very soon we are going to cross the point where women control more of the wealth in this country than men do. And they more often than not like to work with with other women. So are you referring to the transition that's taking place amongst the baby boomers mm -hmm. as that wealth trans there's two wealth transfers that are going to take place. On average, and I'm only speaking statistically, on average the husband dies first. Right. Men have a shorter lifespan. Right. At that point, the wife will end up holding all those assets Correct. and then those assets will 
eventually pass, much of them will pass to the next generation. So you And that next generation there's more women graduating from college and graduate school than there are men. So to the extent that that has a tie to career and financial success, that that next generation is likely to have a little bit of a of a female bias as well. Amongst people in the industry or just amongst whoever is inheriting those Who's assets? Who's ever inheriting those assets. So there, there, there's going to be control, majority control of the investable assets in this country by women within the next uh, several years. It, but isn't that true statistically for many different things that uh, involve women that they're going to be greater in numbers, they're graduating college in greater mm-hmm. numbers, grad school, go down the list of things that were once frowned upon within society, that that really seems to be changing. So the question for you is, does a woman starting out in this industry still encounter the same sort of obstacles that you did when you began, or you you might have, but got fortunate to I, not I, I have that? I think a lot of it was, um, I was in the right place at the right time and doing the right things in terms of the early stages of, of my career. And of course, I'm 29 years in the business now, so I don't have direct experience with what it's like today for women coming into the business. Uh, I do think it's probably a little bit easier. I just think the the approach to to gender differentiation on Wall Street generically has changed from kind of the go go days of the early eighties. The 80s. boom boom rooms. The boom, right when you when you look at at some of the the more popular uh, movies or shows about that era of Wall Street, it is concentrated in that era. Exaggerated, no question about that. But I think that being a woman in this business, number one, you're a minority, which has a negative tone to it, that word, but it also means you're a little bit different. And I think being a little bit different relative to, I don't know, call it the middle-aged white guy that dominates uh, Wall Street is not necessarily a bad thing. It, it, it gives you that level of differentiation right out of the blocks before you've done anything or said anything. And I, th- I, I, I hope that women do consider this as an industry to the point about women controlling more assets, they like to work with other women. It's why I think in the RIA space, Mm -hmm. independent investment advisors, there's a lot more women-owned investment advisors, and they're very popular with other women investors because they like that camaraderie. There there tends to be more women RIAs than there are female traders or female Mm -hmm. brokers. It's just more conducive to that one-on-one relationship. And to your point, I think that's the pocket of the business that is still very, very male-dominated and probably hard to infiltrate which is trading desks and sales trading and position trading. And I'm not sure that changes in, in my career lifetime, but that wasn't an area I was ever involved in. So it, it never hit me personally. But I've certainly watched you know, friends and colleagues have a much more difficult time trying to infiltrate what is still probably a, a boys' network. I started on a trading's desk. It was very rough and tumble, mm-hmm. a lot of sharp elbows. And I don't know if that was as much male as it was just generally a different philosophical approach to the world. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Liz Ann Saunders. She is the chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab, managing two point something trillion dollars. Is that right? Two and a half trillion, but I wouldn't suggest that I assets. am managing it. That's yes, right. in client assets. I don't think anybody is really managing Probably a trillion not. dollars, that, at least not, not that we're aware of. <laughs> Um, so let's talk a little bit about where we are in the cycle and, okay. and what you see as things that investors are doing right and things that are, our investors are doing wrong. Let, let's start with the first question. When when you look at an investment, how do you go about evaluating that? What's your process like? 
Well, it depends on the investment. You know, most of my work that I do uh, in, my, in my role as strategist at Schwab is very top-down, 30,000-foot uh, view. So unlike my Zweig avatar days when I was actually picking stocks on a day-to-day -day basis, that's largely not what I do right now. So I'm looking at, at major macro uh, trends. But I would say that the thing that I look for most, whether it's at the industry level, the sector level, the asset class level, uh, is inflection points. And I think that is one of the things that trips investors up more than anything else is not understanding the power of inflection points and the fact that the market, the stock market as a leading indicator is going to often have its best performance when it launches off one of those inflection points. But if you think about it, if you think about how the stock market relates to the economy, an inflection point on the downside is the bottom of the V. So when the data has stopped getting worse, but is only starting to get better. But by definition, the bottom of an inflection point, that point at the V where things turn, that's when the data is most ugly in an absolute sense. You, you don't have the benefit of looking ahead to say, okay, we're at the bottom, we know it's moving forward, but the market's job is to find that point and move higher. And I think that's what investors miss quite often is they, because there's so much emotional tie to our money, that they want to feel good about the data that surrounds them, the economic data, the earnings data, all the broad fundamental data, that they miss up, up, they miss those opportunities because they want that confirmation to come from the data that isn't going to confirm until it's largely well into the process. So, so let's use the last cycle as an example. Mm -hmm. Market bottomed in March 09. The recession officially ended when? June of 09. June 09. And, and we didn't learn that from the NBER until? Uh, it was, I think, uh, 16 September? months later. Yeah, it was September yeah. yep. 2010. Yes. So if you waited to find out that the all clear whistle had been blown, you probably missed a 40% or so move Absolutely. Off the and I remember I, I, I had an interesting appearance on uh, Good Morning America in May of 2009, and it was when Diane Sawyer was still hosting the show. And she did the pre-interview with me the night before. And I was scheduled to come on to talk not about the recession or the market, but really about the ABCs of, of credit default swaps. I was coming on to attempt to explain to their more broad audience what these derivatives were that were causing so much trouble. Yet at the end of our conversation the night before, she said, so do you think this thing will ever end? And I said, well, I think the bear market's already over, and I think the recession is ending. I think it's probably over now, maybe a month from now, maybe two months from now. So unbeknownst to me, the next morning I go on air, and she introduces me by saying, Lizanne is here to declare the recession officially <laughs> over. And I laughed. I said, well, last time I checked, I had no official capacity to declare recessions, um, you know, having started her over. I got so much hate mail from that appearance from people saying everything from you're an idiot to isn't it easy for you to say things are getting better because you have a job and you're employed. <laughs> and But it, I, the, the point I was trying to make was I think things have stopped getting worse. But at the point they stopped getting worse, they it, are at their most brutal point it, in time. It still looks horrible. It still you know, looks horrible. The, the funny thing is about the pushback you get. I did a piece some time ago, and it was not supposed to be a market call. It was simply, hey, let's do an evaluation of the Dow and figure out where it was. And this was late 06 or early 07. And, and basically, you come up with a number, uh, housing and banking, all this stuff, and you come up with a number about 9,800. And at the time, I want to say the Dow was 12,000 or 13,000. And the pushback is, oh my, and, and then within the piece it was, and by the way, if we break 
10,000 on the way to 9,800. Hey, who knows? You could see 6,800. That was like buried. It was not <laughs> the piece wasn't, hey, we're going to Dow 6,800. It's, hey, let's figure out what the Let's fair be objective. Yeah. Look at, right. And so for two years, all I heard was you're a perma bear. You uh -huh. hate the U.S. Uh -huh. You hate. So around the same time, we had the bullish call. It was just every indicator we tracked was pinned all pinned. the way, like the VU meters for you kids that's an analog <laughs> meter on the old stereos and and for you younger kids that's how people used to listen to music but um but at that point suddenly I'm a permabull and it dawned on me it's like oh these people don't care anything about what I'm saying they're seeing the world through a pained money losing perspective Absolutely. of whatever is going on is hurting their portfolio mm -hmm. and therefore it's Liz Ann Saunders fault right Right. <laughs> so so I, I've learned I've learned to use that as a, you know, uh, a, a bit of confirmation. No that question. When, when you were out on a limb and, uh, you know, Herb Greenberg used to call it the hate ometer was spinning out of control. That's usually a good sign that that's you're on to something. You know, Sir Baron Rothschild, buy when there's buy when there's blood in the street, even if it's your own. Any number of Warren Buffett quotes, I want to buy when everybody else is selling. There's a reason why the great investors have coined phrases like that. They're trying to get the heart of what we're talking about. Let me tell you one other absolutely dead true story, and I won't name names to protect the uh, not so innocent at the time. I'm going to run them down though. As no, I'm a not guess. saying names. The weekend, the literally the weekend before the bottom in March of '09, which was March 9th, was the bottom. So whatever, whatever the Friday or Saturday night date was, my husband and I are at a cocktail party, and we live in Darien, Connecticut, which had the lovely distinction in 2008 of being named, made the cover of Business Week as the number one town in the country most affected by the financial crisis, based on a certain population and below. So I'm surrounded by Wall Street people. Our entire circle of friends are Wall Street people. So the conversation naturally at that time was about what was going on. And one of my friends who has been in the business 35 years said, Lizanne, I, I, I don't envy you. I, I think there's no reason ever again why an individual investor would want to be in the market. And it has to make you wonder about the sustainability of, of Schwab. <laughs> and I... I Sort of looked at him, and my husband looked at me kind of funny, and I said, "Well, I, you know, I beg to differ. And, um, in fact, I think that the conditions are starting to look pretty interesting." We get in the car, and my husband looked at me. He said, "Did you hear it?" And I knew immediately what he meant. I said, "You mean the bell ringing?" He said, "I knew you were thinking that as soon as he said it," which we all know the phrase: "They never ring a bell at tops and bottoms." But that was one of those, okay, the last man standing is down. There's just no that's one it. else left. Right. And that's what bottoms feel like. See, I've always learned that they don't ring a bell at the top, but the bottom, you know, if it's not a bell. When your bell has been rung more than you could possibly take, that's more often than not the bottom. There is a visceral panic on the streets. Like, mm -hmm. I know Manhattan isn't America. Manhattan is a small island off the east coast of America. But you could walk down the streets in February and March of 09, and it was palpable. Oh, you could feel it. There, oh, there yeah. was genuine yes. fear and angst and, uh, yep. dare I say, panic. It was out there. It was. And if you were attuned to it, it was really just a question of when do you, you – you're going to risk being a little early. You could break it up into four pieces, right. put a little to work now, a right. little to work next week, next month. But at that point, that was pretty much you know that sensation of ringing a bell, a handful – more people claim to have heard it today. 
than actually heard it. Everybody's fantastic in hindsight, myself Always. included. Hindsight but. bias is the greatest thing. But there's no doubt that you walked around and it, it was it was visceral. So so let's talk a little bit about here we are. We're in year six of a bull market. We're up over 200% on the S&P 500. We've had prior guests like Ralph Acampora and Laszlo Barini and Jeff Sout. I know you know most of these gentlemen mm-hmm. who are in the secular bull market camp. Ditto. Ditto. So that was the question. Is I think we're in. I think. I think what we we started a secular bull market. No nine. There's, there's no investopedia definition for a secular bull market. Mm-hmm. You can, it's 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 more akin to well, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck. So you have to look at what ultimately were the various characteristics of the three big secular bull market markets we've had in the post 1900 era. So the 1920s, the mid 40s to mid 60s, and then the big one 82 to 2000, and you had. Uh, negative real interest rates at their beginning. You actually had a very high, sort of secular high unemployment rate. In other words, you know, epic economic problem that that mm-hmm. ultimately finally came to a head with a you know, double digit unemployment rate um, and secular low kind of valuations, which many argue that we didn't quite have this time because you really only very quickly dipped into single digit territory at the lows. The difference, though, is that versus, say, 1982, when I think the PE got down to around six, is you had runaway inflation and double-digit interest rates, right. which put Risk-free, huge downward pressure on valuations. Right. Risk-free rate of return in 82 was like 12%. Right. Why would I want – I could get 12% with no risk with no from risk. Uncle Sam. Right. Why on earth would I want to buy equities? As opposed to getting 3% right. from Uncle Sam, right. all right, I'll take – hey, I get a 3% dividend yields and I have potential upside – that's why you never saw that same right. Same but low. I think a nine PE was certainly low enough in that kind of background to suggest that those conditions are in place. And now, just look at the six years of returns that we have had. Uh, you know, pretty much a straight shot up, and uh, and that just does not happen if you, we were still in a secular bear market. We've been speaking with Liz Ann Saunders, chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab. If people want to find your writings or follow you, what's the best way for them to track? Schwab.com. Schwab.com. You don't have to be a client. You just go on the uh, uh, public site. And And it's all there for people to read. The insights section. Yep, it's not hard to find. If you've enjoyed this conversation, be sure and listen to all of our podcast extras where we let the tape run and continue chatting. You can check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter At Ritholtz, I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back to the show. This is the podcast portion where we basically uh, kick off our shoes, relax. I'm going to take my headphones off because my engineer doesn't need to tell me how much time is left in this segment. (laughs) If if the building's on fire or something, just jump up and down. So a few. Let's get a few things um, out of the way before we go. I didn't get your Twitter handle. Mentioned on the radio. At Lizanne Saunders. Uh, How's anyone going to remember that? At L-I-Z-A-N-N, no E, S-O-N-D-E-R-S. Not Sanders Saunders. Not Sanders, not Saunders. If you Google your name, it comes up, and that comes up about the fourth thing down. You just have to start, you just have to put Lizanne in, and it'll come up. So let me ask you, we weren't planning on talking about this. Okay. I don't even know what you're about to talk about. So- Twitter. Let's talk. Okay. We were just All talking right. during the break. Right. We were talking I'm, about Twitter. I'm new, brand new on Twitter. So how long have you been on Twitter? Just for? a few weeks. All right. A couple of months ago, Morgan Stanley came out, or some other big house. I don't remember. For might not have been Morgan Stanley. I think it was. But before I throw them under the bus, some big wirehouse came out with 
a set of guidelines for Twitter, and they basically create a list of pre-approved tweets that anybody who works for them, and it was really kind of absurd. So my question for you is, how do you have a lot of room to... Uh, well, I, at this stage, um, everything does have to be pre-approved. Mm-hmm. But I have yet to um, get told I could not uh, tweet something that I suggested I wanted to. So everything's how, been approved. How much are you tweeting like, hey, here's not, my weekly... Not, not as often as I will probably when I don't have to go through uh, that right. process. We're, we're very soon at the point where we won't have to get pre-approval to tweet links to things we've done or radio appearances or TV right. appearances. That'll basically happen whenever we want. But, but you're kind of a live wire. They're afraid you're going to be, you know, you're a, you're a bomb thrower. They're well, afraid you're going to really they, cause some... They hope to get to the point very soon where they make the same assumption about me and other subject matter experts that they do when they allow us or send us off to do radio or TV, which every is, 140 characters is essentially a we're tweet. We're not right. We're not going to embarrass ourselves right. or or shame the firm. And uh, but we're we're new at at the firm right. in in being out there in the hey, Twitter sphere. I so. give them credit for giving you some rope. To, giving they you give some, some room. rope, but you know Schwab. Uh, part of our, our our culture is to be on top of things like this, and mm-hmm. I think the reason why we came through the the financial crisis relatively unscathed was because it's a it's a culture of honesty and mm-hmm. and integrity and we want to maintain that in everything that we do. It's it's a conservative approach to all right we'll get involved in this but we'll go a little slow. I As did a, have a, my most fun tweet was actually just today. Because of the duke in, or because Well of, yeah, because I was in my office and I hadn't thought about uh, tweeting it and one of you know many headlines today came across of, right. of the duke win. And I looked up and I realized I looked on my shelf in my office and there is my signed ball from Coach K. Oh, really? From having, uh, I was a guest lecturer at Duke in 2006. Mm-hmm. And the thank you was a, a signed oh, ball that's, that's in a Lucite uh, box. So I, I took a photo of it and, and just said, uh, you know, I had the great pleasure of being a guest lecturer a number of years ago. How cool is this gift now having gotten? And that was obviously pre the thousandth win. Right. So I don't know whether now between that having happened, the thousandth win and now me tweeting it, I, I may have you to get put some a money for it on thing. eBay. Yeah, there, that's the. <laughs> So they're, they're loosening up a little bit, in other words. Yes, they're, and, they're... and it's been fun. I, Twitter is a, is a lot of fun. Um, very close uh, friend of mine is, uh, who you may know, is Anthony Noto, who is the- Oh, sure. Former Goldman, Goldman Sachs. Sachs and now right. the- um, uh, I don't know him, but I certainly CFO know of him. of Twitter. Mm-hmm. So he's our next door neighbor and close friend. And I'll have to bring him in for the show. That would you be should. fun. You he should. He would be an interesting- he would, he, would, uh... he, would be, he would be great because he brought Twitter public when he was at Goldman and And, now, and then when- as and one of the things I always ask guests is, hey, who do you think would be good for the show? I think he'd be great. He's it, it, To the extent he's listening, he's probably going to say, what is she doing? <laughs> but if you remember, before going back to Goldman Sachs, he did a stint in the NFL as the oh, CFO really? of the NFL under Roger Goodell. Oh, so that must got, have been he's really got interesting. Some, he's got some cool stories. And no uh, head injuries, no lasting not, uh, problems not, not from that. Not as far as we can uh, yeah, mo- The we CFOs can wear I, very different helmets than the rest of the players. And <laughs> yes, exactly. They got a pre- <laughs> The, well, it's an old a, Mel Brooks joke. He was a football joke. player at Army, so he and he was an Army Ranger, so he might have had some. Uh, oh, really? so he's a ser- he's a he's, serious he's dude. A, yeah, he'd be a, he'd be a good he'd be a good one for you. Yeah, no, show. that's really that's fascinating. Idea. Suddenly, I find myself as his pitch pitch woman here. Right. <laughs> it's um. Well, you know, it's always very easy to just. Uh, we all have a circle of con- contacts and friends, yep. and I'm always looking to, you know, move outside of that comfort zone. Uh, 
I'm a little bit of a foodie. This I promise this is not <laughs> fast food over here. But a few weeks ago, we had Bobby Flay. Oh. And it was a fascinating conversation. Down-to-earth New Yorker, no BS sort of guy. And it forces you to think, like you said earlier, as a woman in what's predominantly a male business, it kind of forces you to be a little different, think outside of the box, and force forces everybody else around you to, to interact in a slightly different way. So I'm always saying... What can we do that's just not not that we've done a thousand of these and it's become boring. They're always interesting. They're always my engineer makes fun of me. Uh, count how many times Barry says fascinating during during the interview because I find this stuff fascinating. Uh, I I agree. I think first of all, this is ver- this is a very cool conversation to have because it's it's real topics for in depth uh, in depth right. full sentences, not sound bites. And- What's your favorite stock pick? Where's the market going to be in yeah. a year? Coming back, we'll you know it's that sort of stuff. I use ugh, I like and what is the value to the zero value public? to that I, right? I and and a lot of people do. So talking about really cool, you worked for Marty's Weig for how long? Thirteen years. I, I mean, by the way, he passed away sadly two years ago, not too long ago. And I wrote a um, I wrote a tribute that is still I saw posted it. on Schwab.com. I saw it, and it, I the the title of it was a take on the book he recommended that I read when I first joined the firm, which is Reminiscences of a Stock Operator, which, which, by Edwin Lefebvre. So now is this Brilliant true? Book. So let let's. There's a million digressions here. So he, I heard that that book was kind of a lost book. Until Marty Zweig started talking about it, and it suddenly became it's a very, bestseller. It's very possible, and Laszlo Barini too. Mm-hmm. That's his baby. In fact, all he his his weekly or monthly piece that he puts out is called Reminiscences. He always has a quote from the book. So there, I get there it, are and a I few didn't... people from that '80s era that were real acolytes of that. Mm-hmm. Of that I book. get Laszlo's stuff, and he was a guest on the show, and I never put together like you recognize Reminiscences as a. Reminiscence of a stock op- stock operator, or reminiscence of a trader, or however uh, you want to describe it. But I didn't realize that that was his reference. That's yes. really yep. uh, fascinating. And so this this tribute that I wrote was reminiscences of of Marty Zweig, and it um, is the number one most read report I have ever written in really? in all my years. In That's the, amazing uh, in the business. Uh, you, so I get emails all the time on the show. A lot of kids in college, a lot of people in grad school. And the question that always comes up is how much is this contextualized for them relative to who's Marty's wife? Mm-hmm. And, th- you know, the interesting thing about Google, which is a phenomenal company and Google as a search, I, I showed someone the other day, you know, you can drag an image to Google search and it'll find similar or the source of very often I have a, a, an image and I'm like, where's this from? You drag it to the search box and it'll show you where it like came from. Like a facial from. recognition right. kind of thing. It, it's, yep. it's crazy. However, the one flaw that Google has is that stuff that predates the late 90s. I know. You know, you search for Marty's Wag and you'll get the book and you'll get a couple of things. But he obviously didn't have a big internet footprint. Because there wasn't an internet. There wasn't an internet. So I think people who are, you know, history didn't begin in 1992. It goes further back. So explain to people who may be a little younger and may not be familiar with Marty Zweig. We talked a little bit about his phenomenal call around the 87 crash. But that was really one in a series of really— And it was was what— what he looked at, the way he analyzed markets, that allowed him to see what was happening. And I think it, it, we, we already talked about the fact that he coined the phrase, don't fight the Fed. 
Huge, so huge it insight. It wasn't just a little quip that became famous. It was his whole basis for thinking about the role of monetary liquidity in financial markets, which is what ultimately led to this cute little phrase, but it was mm. really what was underneath it. He also created the put-call ratio, which a lot of people don't realize. Put-call ratio, meaning looking at the options, how many are bullish, how many are bearish. The actual and ratio was, was invented a, uh, by uh, by Marty. And I didn't know he, that. That's interesting. He was the the creator of and pioneer of and and probably first user of many of the sentiment indicators that, that we all look at very regularly now and, and really believed that more than anything, that crowd psychology, the, mm-hmm. the move from fear and greed, so dominated many of the traditional fundamentals. In fact, he was often asked the question, if you could pick one of your hundreds of indicators that you look at, only one, you had to time markets based on one single indicator. And his answer was always time and Newsweek covers. Mm-hmm. We have if you had a bull or a bear on both covers within a week, trouble. Trouble. Well, the opposite Reversal. would typically happy, mm-hmm. and that was to our point pre-internet, pre all of the the financial media and publications that we have right now, where you had a much smaller subset, and if on those two big popular national magazines, you had double bulls, you know, watch out below or vice versa. Paul McRae Montgomery, who passed away last year, was the guy who literally invented the magazine cover indicator, I want to say about 30 years ago. But he would write about it in a very academic way. It wasn't, oh, look, this is on the cover. We're going to hell. Right. It was always- There's actual research behind right. that. Here's right. the data. He yep. also was the one who, who started looking at the length of women's skirts as a potential <laughs> indicator. He looked was at he a lot of- Was he the Super Bowl indicator guy too? No, no. no. <laughs> and the Super Bowl indicator turns out to be you know, pretty much nonsense. Yeah. Just, well, uh, a lot a lot of them are. Um, so what else uh, did Marty look at in his- so? Uh, I'm I'm going to a different question, so let me not beat around the bush and get to it. A line I've heard my whole career is, "Hey, you know, there's no such thing as a wealthy technician." Marty kind of proves that to be. I think he sheer did nonsense. prove that, but there was it was not just technical indicators. He was not just a chartist. He was, but he also believed, and I think he kind of co-coined the phrase "the trend is your friend" with with our other friend Ned Davis, mm-hmm. who had worked with Marty many, many years sharing research and Schwab is still big clients of Ned Davis. And he's so, sort of quasi retired now. Uh he's still he's still relatively active. He still mm-hmm. writes. Um he's got a you know big, huge organization huge, under him huge, now. Huge, and they're tremendous. phenomenal. They sold it last year to um or two years ago. Was it Alliance Bernstein bought uh, somebody bought them. I don't remember who it was. Oh I don't I yeah, yeah, know so, they were had a parent now. Um I know it's ISI sold to Evercore. Really? Luthold is under Whedon. Mm-hmm. So Ned da- is right. Ned Davis still independent or somebody uh, buy him? I don't That's a very let's, good question. Let's go to the Google machine. There you go. And uh, But, I, you know, Marty, so he, he certainly looked at a lot of technical factors, many of the traditional ones that we look at right now, um, sentiment indicators, but also to the point of the trend is your friend, he, he looked at momentum factors, but the biggest component, if you wanted to look just at the breakdown of the model, mm-hmm. the biggest component was the monetary environment, was was economic liquidity. Um, which was this is, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, or across that yes, whole yes period? Yes, yes, and yes, across so the whole period. He looked at, at monetary policy, what the central we bank We basically did. had monetary liquidity, investor liquidity, and momentum were the three categories 
of indicators. So monetary liquidity would be all the interest rate, Fed policy mm-hmm. indicators, uh, monetary base, money supply. Do you remember the days when you would wait till Friday afternoon for the money, money supply? supply? To Isn't come it out? incredible? Like the, wave, even cares the waves about it you now. go through yeah. in almost 30 years in the business of what are the hot, popular indicators that you wait with bated breath to get. Right. I remember when it was a trade deficit. Mm-hmm. It really is amazing what sort of captures. And in many cases, it's because those are more market-moving figures at the time. But it is right. incredible. You're right. Now you look you, back at money supply. Like, Who cares? <laughs> Nobody pays attention to that anymore. <laughs> yeah, the Fed's got a $4 trillion balance sheet. But so who cares about the weekly uh, weekly factors? By the way, Ned Davis, majority stake purchased by Euro Money, Euro in Money, June okay. two thousand eleven. All right. So and I also so they've, know I've, they've been they've kept I think a, a distance because I didn't even know that and and mm-hmm. I've been a client. They're of still running Ned it Davis's, independently. Yeah, well, I would assume from from all indications to this user. Before this show launched, I did an interview with Ned Davis, and it was really the the format that set this show up. It was, I want to say about two or three years ago, absolutely fascinating. Um, it was a privilege speaking to him. He's and great. I know his partner, Ed Mendel, who's yeah. also, so I think one of the owners of the Atlanta Falcons, Atlanta Falcons also yes. a, a delightful He just invited gentleman. me to a, to a game next oh, season. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, tell him I so said hello. I, I hope, I, I hope uh, to be able to work it into my schedule. He He's a uh, really interesting guy. Yeah, he is. Another, if, see if I get him up here to sit down. He's like one of these guys that's a very insightful business person. Mm-hmm. It happens to be the business of finance. Right, but it's still a business. But he understands the business better than, mm-hmm. you know, it's really is a great combination because because Ned understood the markets and and understood, and, and understood the business and it was really a great Good a great deal. partnership. Um but I, I I remember was it Big Mo was the the chart mm-hmm. that everybody used mm-hmm. to look at and I think uh and yeah, DR still, still cranks it, it out. Yeah. It's yep. well as long yep. as it's it's showing work it works. So so tell us what life was like working on a daily basis with with Zweig. What what was that? And I have to give credit to Marty's partner Ned Babbitt too, who who I also well known guy. Well known guy. Not no shrinking not, violet. Not, no, uh, not quite to the level of Marty because he his writings were a little bit more uh, quiet and mm-hmm. but um, also Academic, a brilliant. Is that the right uh, word? A little bit. Um, he was he was sort of a, he was a former broker, an mm-hmm. E.F. Hutton broker, um, but uh, knew how to run the business. And then actually the the third guy. That I must give credit to the 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 head of marketing, effectively that that really grew both the Zweig side of the business and the Avatar side of the business, which was the institutional side, was Bruce Poliquin, who is just got um, was just made a member of the House of Representatives representing Maine. So oh, he just really? got elected Very in uh, November. So he was sworn in in I guess January, whenever they do that. And, mm-hmm. Um, he's That's right. on, I think he's on the um, House Financial uh, Services, whatever. Committee? Committee. Um, so he now gets quoted anytime there's discussion about the budget. Um, so would you say these three guys were they all built mentor? The business. Oh, oh, absolutely. Marty's wife. Absolutely. Um, and they were Babbitt. very different personalities. Uh, Bruce was a hyperactive Harvard prep school kind of guy, looked it too with the horn rim glasses and right. talked a million miles a minute and go, 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 go. And and Ned was a little bit more quiet and reserved and Southern accent. Um and Marty was Marty was was a, a character. He really was. He was um uh, many people saw him as as fairly volatile in personality. Um 
would, you know, throw pencils and break stuff, but the biggest heart in in, in the world. And mm-hmm. he was known as a worrier. Um, but in the tribute I wrote to him, I said he really was a warrior. He just he was so seeped in in markets and wanted to understand them and and was so engrossed in it and he was just he was a really neat guy they all were really neat guys to 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 work for and it was very much not the wall street boys network i think that was probably mm-hmm. also what was intriguing to me and maybe why i had have always had the view that i have that being a woman in this business is a great thing because i i wasn't ever jaded in my early years from being in an environment uh, like that uh, there was not a, a chauvinistic bone in in any of them, which hmm. was a special experience. That that's really fascinating, and, and people may not realize this, but when Marty passed away, his I believe his wife put the apartment they lived in up for sale, and it was known as the most expensive or most valuable apartment in New York City. It is a stunning apartment, stunning, really beautiful apartment. It's the uh, top of the Pierre. Um, and really quite extraordinarily beautiful. And it's where uh, Marty had some, though not all, of his memorabilia. He was also well known for being a memorabilia collector. Mm-hmm. And he had, he had the, he was the one that bought the Marilyn Monroe happy birthday dress. Oh, really? And he had huh. the um, Harley Davidson from Easy Rider that Fonda rode, and you name it music memorabilia and guitars and gold records and the original Terminator costume, just really, really cool uh, stuff. So he was fun. He he was a quirky, fun, different uh, guy. And not, not the usual Wall Street. Not far from it. And hmm. I think that was always part of his uh, charm. So his tactical model, what was the thinking behind it? How did that, and I'm not asking for secrets, I'm asking... Generally speaking, how did the tactical model so, run? Uh, it, it, again, it was. Uh, I'm trying to remember the weights. It's now been so. I, I left in 1999, so that was a long time ago. But I think it was 50 percent, 55 percent economic liquidity, 30 percent investor liquidity, and 15 percent momentum. What is investor liquidity? Uh, that's basically sentiment. Okay. So measuring direct. Sentiment in in the sense that you're actually looking at asset flows and cash levels that investors will have, and then the attitudinal measures of sentiment, like the put-call ratio, like AAII or investors' intelligence, those types of measures that measure the attitudes of Mm -hmm. investors. So that was what we called investor liquidity. And then 15% was momentum, which is a lot of those shorter-term technical, uh, you know, Oscillators in, in, in with the trend, that type of, those gotcha. types of indicators. So now let's let's get into some of the questions we missed earlier. I asked you what, what it was like working um, with Marty. What's a day in the life of Lizanne Saunders at Schwab like? Oh, gosh, depends on the day. So, Well, that's the, can I tell you when people say to me, God, you're up so early, you go to work so early every day, what? What's it like? My answer is always, hey, it's different every day. It's That's different what every makes day, it so which is what you're absolutely right. It's it's the thing I think that is most intriguing about this this industry. Certainly, what you and I do is it changes every day. I had a funny comment made of me uh, or made to me. Uh, this is maybe about a year ago, and I was uh, speaking at a large client event, and an investor who had been there the last time I was in whatever city it was a couple of years before said something funny. He said. Are you giving the same speech you gave two years ago? That's Which I didn't want to laugh in his face, but first of all, I don't write speeches. I, I speak off the cuff. I don't use notes. No bullet points. You uh, just no go up there point. and now, wing I it. No bullet points. Now I have I have 
uh, charts that I show. So I always have a PowerPoint presentation. So in effect, uh, that serves as an outline of I sorts. do the same thing. And people said to me, you know, you said, and I'm like, I, I don't know. It's, I, I just, it, the chart comes up chart and I describe up, I what it means it, in context. And, but I, So you could use the same set of slides. No, I But never, it's a I different... But even I might even use the same exact deck, if you want to call it that. But it's a totally a different speech. For a lunch event and an evening event. And if the lunch event are advisors that are on Schwab's platform, so they're professional money managers, and then I use the same charts talking to an audience of individual investors, our retail audience, same exact visuals, totally very different, different message, very different in terms of what I what I choose to explain, what I don't, the assumptions I make. Not that I'm dumbing it down. It's just it's a, emphasis and context. But the funny comment back to this guy was number one: I don't write a speech and then recite it. But to suggest that I could be talking about the same things two years later, right? Like Nothing's I, changed. What's changed over two so, years? It's and, all the but same. But that's what makes this this business and what we do so fascinating because it's something different uh, every day. And and I. I would say a day in the life of, of Lausanne is I read, write, and talk. So I read, write, and talk. I like that. Because that's on essentially the road, what we do. That's what that... we do. We read, write, and talk. When I'm on the road, which I travel every week, um, I'm talking. You travel that much. You're week. on the road every now, week. I'm not Monday through Friday every week. But, but once I'm, a week, at least I'm you're somewhere. I'm going somewhere every week. Mm -hmm. uh, I get a little reprieve in the August time frame because... Big events are not happening typically right. in the dead of vacation season. Right. And then I get a little reprieve in the December, you know, Thanksgiving holiday. to New Year's. Uh, usually all... beginning of December is still pretty busy. But really? mid-December to early January is a break. And then mid-July to the end of August is a break. But other than that, it's 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 every mm -hmm. week. So when I'm on the road, I'm talking. And when I'm not, I'm reading and writing. So mm -hmm. um, I Mondays are generally publishing days. So that's when I'm doing a lot of my writing. The, the Friday before and the weekend is a lot of prep and thinking and uh, editing and editing, writing and notes and sending, torturing my research assistant with, can you put this chart together? Can you get this data for me? And and then I read constantly. I haven't mm -hmm. read a fun book in forever, but I, I the day to day stuff I read constantly. They they make fun of me in the office. I go on vacation, like Feb, we were talking about February, and I'll bring a stack of eight books with me, and they're all. It'll be seven unrelated finance books and then whatever Michael Lewis's latest <laughs> book is. And they're like, why would you bring that? Well, I'll read them on the way. Who reads it? You can't read two books a day. Flash Boys. I started it after breakfast on the beach. And you finished same day? Uh, absolutely. And it was a fat... The year, a couple of years before, the big short mm -hmm. started on. I actually saved it for Wednesday. I didn't want to peak too soon in my now, book consumption. Now, you are, you happen to, though, be talking about somebody who's really cornered the market on business books that are also really, really fun and enjoyable and fascinating to read. But there are lots of other books. All right, so this last vacation, and they were making fun of me because they're like, why are you schlepping all these books? So. Uh, Carrie Elways is the person who played oh, and, um, and Princess Bride. That's exactly right. So he has this book out that's charming and delightful about his experience making the movie, and it's just no, uh, lo it's lovely. And it was my first date with my husband. Was oh, really? That movie. Uh, we've always loved that movie. It's, it's a delightful, delightful movie. movie. Very different character for Robin Wright than. The one she's playing now in House of Cards. <laughs> to say the least. And she is just so gorgeous oh, in that movie. Fabulous. And everybody in... I mean, there are famous lines from that movie that we say sometimes and people look at you like... Inconceivable. I don't think that word means what, what you think it means. <laughs> ha have fun storming the castle. We say that to people all the time. They're like, what are you, what are you, what are you talking about? Um, but I finished that book before lunch. Yeah. That's not a heavy... 
And then the third book I I I actually one of the books I only got like halfway through. So some you could finish by lunch, some you could kill in a day. How to be less wrong was a by a mathematician that explains how to use statistics in everyday life. And it's really, you know, it starts out with this wonderful anecdote of, and I'm forgetting the gentleman's name, but he was a professor at Columbia. So the Army comes to him and the Air Force comes to him. There really wasn't an Air Force then. It was the Army Air Corps. Comes to him during World War II and says, we're trying to figure out the optimal place to add armor to our various bombers. And here's what we have coming back to us. And here's the dispersion pattern. Here's what's on the wings. And here's what's on the fuselage. And here's what's on the tail and blah. And he says, um, you don't have any planes coming back with uh, holes in, in about the engine. Yeah, that's adequately uh, armored. And, you know, they're all he's like, no, no, no. You get hit there. You don't come back. Right, you you're completely misunderstanding the whole statistics. Right. This sample set is giving you information. You're just looking at it backwards. And the answer is you need more armor on your actual uh, engines if you want those planes to come back as opposed to a stray you know, even a Nick sending them down. So I, it was kind of, as it got further along the book, it got a little heavier, a little more in-depth mathematics. And so you start to slow down your, your reading pace. But um, that's my only, like you, that's but, uh, my see, only time. I, I, I'm not a big book reader. And there's so many. I, and, I, and I get them. I get lovely gifts from people. For a me, good it's finance the, book reader no, or general Generally. Reader? I read constantly, but it's all the day-to-day -day stuff that right. I get from all the research providers that I get and your stuff and blogs and and so keeping up with that it's a fire hose stuff, of stuff it is a totally drinking from a fire hose mm -hmm. yep. so we had a conversation in our office I want to say last year and all of us made a commitment to read more finance related books stop and think about it you have Marty Zweig's book here's a guy who's winning a, on Wall Street right a legendary investor who basically says, I'm going to take a thousand hours out of my year to explain to you everything I've learned about markets over the past four decades. Now, you could do that or you could read a newspaper and watch television. Which do you think net net is going to have a longer lasting impact on you as an investor? So, so we kind of all and I always have a giant queue of books and I'm always working my way through it. And I find finding interesting books that are not written by finance people but are applicable to finance is really fascinating and and whether it's about science and technology or just about ways of thinking have you read abundance by peter diamandis it's on my it's you funny you said that it's one. in my amazon i haven't queue. i haven't read it cover to cover like a like a novel it's dog-eared, and I've probably read every word in various times right. and for different reasons. But I tell you, if you want, if you are feeling at all pessimistic about the future of our world, the future of this country, that's a book you got to read. It is. It is such a. He's the founder of the X Prize, mm -hmm. um, and it just talks about you never know where a brilliant idea is going to come from and where where you're going to find creativity and innovation. And when you have two to three billion more people coming into the world of innovation and information, you just never know where a good idea is going to come from. He uses as an example, one of the more recent X Prizes was for anybody. You know, the X Prize is about setting up a financial incentive for people to solve problems. And it might be a large an company. An X prize for X prizes could be could be for a you know an individual in their garage just 
you know, XYZ company is sponsoring a $20 million X prize to figure out fill in the blank. And one of them was figure out how to contain an oil spill immediately after it's happened hmm. so that it doesn't spread. And he talks about the fact that the winner of that was a tattoo artist. Wow. Who he said the light bulb went on when he thought about how whatever chemicals are used to prevent the ink when it's applied from, from, from spreading, spreading right. on the skin. And he adopted the same thinking and I think partnered up with, with chemists and right. and ultimately won the prize. So he just uses an example of you never know where the next huh. great thing is going to come from and uh, you know, don't don't um, don't assume that that the the greatness of of us as innovators and and creative people is diminishing. That's funny because I had a conversation with a reporter yesterday, a, a young gentleman at UNC, who was asking. I'm sorry, that's wrong. It was a different reporter, and it was um, I think it was U.S. News and World Report about they had looked into something. And I had written about uh, in 2000, Fortune did this, you know, 10 stocks, you know, for the next 10 years. And it was a debacle. <laughs> you know, it was Enron and a bunch oh, of other. Boy. It was just a oh, horror boy. show. And so now there was more recently, and I don't remember who did it, um, 30 stocks for the next 30 years. And the person asked me, why is this a bad idea? And to your concept, I said, there is a kid today. He's 14, mm -hmm. Right. In 13 years or so, he will be out of college, out of grad school, 27 years old at some startup somewhere. Right. And I can't tell you what the hell this guy is going to invent, but it's going to cure gonna, cancer right. or change change, the world change batteries. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was just an article the other day about, hey, if we swap aluminum for this iod, this, this diode in batteries, it's... You know, 40% lighter, lasts 90% longer, and by the way, you could recharge a battery in 30 seconds. Nobody has the slightest clue exactly. where this next thing is going to go. Exactly. So how are you going to pick 30 companies for 30 years? Go back 30 years ago. Most of them don't, don't, even, don't even exist. You know, look at the Nifty 50. Sure. You know, they. by the way, they underperformed. Look at just the NASDAQ and its construction in 2000 relative to what it is right now. Does, does so you've been around long enough as Thank as you. have I to to remember the 90s really vividly. Sure. Microsoft essentially bailed out Apple with a 150 mm -hmm. million dollar investment and my thesis at the time was well they wanted another operating system to keep the justice department at bay had Apple gone under they would have been really the only right, it been OS Apple, it would have yeah. been an antitrust problem. If I would have said to you by the way that was a terrible mistake Microsoft made apple is going to come out with all these great products and they're just going to kick microsoft's butt microsoft will still be a cash cow right right uh, i i got an email from a friend and her signature is typed on glass sent by magic which is really what a iphone or an ipad mm -hmm. is and uh, by the way so we're not even talking 100 years from now we're talking sure. 15 years from now apple will become the biggest market cap in the world Microsoft will still be a cash cow, but they'll really have no waning influence on technology. You would have said you've lost your mind, you're Absolutely. hallucinating. That Not only is that not realistic, it's probably impossible. I, I agree. And that's like all of 15, 16 years ago. Mm -hmm. So now double that. 30 right. years from now, which of these companies... It, Not only that, absurdity. but whether it's you know Moore's law, the, the 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 speed with which things are changing and innovations kicking in grows exponentially. 
And uh, so that's, you know, the, also the t- Peter Diamandis concept, and he named a university off of it, Singularity. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I agree. I think that there is a— I think that's beyond our lifetime, the Singularity. Probably. I'm hoping it's beyond our yeah. uh, lifetime. So when I had Byron Wien on, he talked about—he he left a lot of money to Harvard. He gave a lot of money to all these different uh, charities. He's very much a philanthropist. Love Byron. But he made a bunch of money investing in biotechs. 25 years ago. And he goes, I don't even look at them. I bought them. I put them away for 25 years. And now they're worth millions mm-hmm. and millions of dollars. People are just starting. You had the 60 Minutes piece not too long ago. You had the Vice piece not too long ago about the combination of genomics, uh, immunology. And, and there was one other factor where essentially cancer, for the first time ever, seems to be coming up on a potential cure. Right. Which I I think not because I have any medical expertise, but maybe it's just hope is is in our lifetime thing. I don't even think it's in our lifetime. I think it's somewhere in the next five to 10 years. So if you if you see the 60 minutes piece showed them taking um, polio polio virus, not even the vaccine. Genetically and in, altering it and, and dripping it, it into, into the, the brain yes, I know. to, to kill what is normally, and now granted, it's only a 50% success rate, right. but that's huge. Fifty. Sure. This was a, a, a fatal, you, you get that, that diagnosis, yeah. get your personal affairs in order, and now- And now we're giving it to people in order to cure something uh, even so, more. So I don't know when we're going to, there are some 400 different types of cancer, and it's going to be a process before all of them are gotten, and maybe we don't get all of them, but we get some or more. But that has changed so rapidly. If I would have asked somebody five years ago, hey, what do you think about curing cancer? Yeah, I've been hearing that my whole life. It's a century away. And suddenly, a couple of different technologies, you you get the ability to manipulate DNA, you get all of the increases in technology that everything gets finer and finer. How does anyone have a clue where the next great idea is going to come from? I couldn't agree more. That's why I love the acronym BRAIN. Which is? Biotechnology, robotics, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology for uh, whether you hear it referenced to this is what kids should be studying, like the STEM. um, Right, which uh, was science, technology, engineering, engineering and and math. math. Uh, Yeah, my son just uh, called us about two months ago. He's a freshman at Indiana University, and part of the reason why he went there was the Kelly School of Business, which Mm -hmm. is a— very, very well-renowned, world-renowned uh, business, mm-hmm. undergraduate business school. But he called a couple of months ago and said, um, I, I think I want to minor in business but major in math. And That's a great combo. I said, absolutely. That's a, an absolute yep. combo. Even, and even Wall Street firms are looking for math-oriented uh, No doubt about these it. Days. Look, if you, if you look at the world of quantitative investing, if you say, let's put away the historic myths and the things that are unproven and just say, what do we know actually works, works. mathematically, right. whether it's Jim O'Shaughnessy or Rob Arnott or we had Cliff Asnes recently who basically laid out the the uh, argument for value and momentum together is a very much an unbeatable combination. And the way, reason we know that is mathematics mm-hmm. as opposed to all the specific myths uh, we see. So in the last couple of minutes we have you for, I know we have to get you out of here eventually – Let's see if um, there's a handful of questions I want to come up with you. Well, one, I'm going to jump in and answer something you haven't asked me yet because we've talked so much about mentors and, and Marty. Sure. Um, but how how cool, I'll sort of ask you, 
the 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 sheer luck but bliss that I have had in my career going from working for Marty Zweig to working for Charles Schwab for Chuck the Man. And people don't realize Charles Schwab is a real person. Chuck still is the chairman of the company. Right. And he, is and is very, very active else. chairman. That's somebody else we should get in. Very active chairman. Let, Pat, you, I'm going to have you extend an invite also. he's. Right. I think we could say he's a master of business, he, right? He is certainly a master Two of point business. Two-point something trillion. And he's, and he's about as iconic. He really... He democratized investing for the So, again, for the youngins who don't understand this, there used to be fees that were set for everybody. And then there was a rule change that allowed competition by reducing fees. And Schwab essentially said, okay, let's cut fees. We were the first discount brokerage firm. First discount brokerage firm. Those were the early 70s, 40 years ago. So we just last year celebrated our 40th. uh, 75? um, 74? 74. Mm-hmm. Yep, and he really he he changed the business as as we know it, um, and has been a pioneer all along the uh, the way. Um, stepped back in as CEO a number of years ago, and and then ultimately found his successor in Walt Bettinger, who is our mm-hmm. CEO now. But he is still chairman of the board and a very active uh, chairman, much to the thrill of all of us that get to still have him around on a day-to-day basis. And he's been in the business for more than 40 years. More than 40 years. How old was he when he started Schwab? He He had to be a fairly young guy. 77 now, I guess. Really? So, yeah, he was in his 30s. He looks pretty good for 77. He looks fantastic. He stays in great shape. He's a skier, a golfer. No kidding. Yeah, and he's he's a prince among men. So I have – and then my my media part of what I do – I got to start on Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser. Really? I mean, seriously. You, you've, Marty you've... Zweig, Louis Rukeyser, Chuck Schwab. <laughs> that that <laughs> pinch me. <laughs> you, you should be buying lottery tickets every other it, week it based is, with that it, streak I of have, luck. I have been very, very blessed. That, in, that's in my amazing. Career. One of the questions I I had asked you earlier were who else were some of your mentors. You actually guest hosted for Rukeyser, right? I so um, I was a, a regular. I was a guest initially in 1997. And then he right away I got asked to be a regular panelist. So my first show as a regular panelist was in early 1998. And then maybe it was two or three years later. I don't remember exact time frame, but uh, there was a small subset, about three of us, of panelists that Lou picked to stand in for him mm-hmm. if he was on vacation or not feeling well. And so only one time, but um, I, I got to play Louis Rukeyser. So I, I did the walk-in, I did the monologue, I walked over to the table, sat down with the panelists, went and interviewed uh, a guest, and uh, it was it was incredibly nerve-wracking. Oh, really? You're time. such a natural. I, you know what? I, I don't. Fortunately, I don't get jitters either when I mm-hmm. do public speaking or this type of thing, but you know, standing in Lou's show, shoes for a full sure. half-hour show, uh, and it was you know quite a few years ago, so I was much younger than I am now. Uh, it was it was daunting, but fun. I tell the story. You you actually play a role in my media career because I tell the story the first time I did. Me, me, you and I. The first time first I time? ever that did television. That was your very first appearance, and you told appearance. me that before. I had just finished a Diet Coke in the green room, and I was heading to the bathroom when they tapped me. Hey, we're on the air. Let's go. <laughs> And they bring me in, and it's I'm sitting here. It's a small round table. Next to my left was Larry Kudlow. To my right was you. And a friend of mine who was a strategist uh, at, a, at a firm I had worked at previously, a gentleman named Barry Hyman, had said to me, look, don't look nervous. Don't dart your eyes back and forth. Find something to look at. And I was looking for something. I go, Liz Ann Saunders has the whitest teeth. <laughs> 
I've ever seen. <laughs> and I swear this every word is true. That was my focus. I was just looking you know at what? your- Think about the conversation we had before we walked down into the studio. Mm-hmm. What was it about? Oh, I don't know. That coffee. was so long ago. Oh, that's right. I don't drink oh, coffee. Oh, that's hilarious. That's absolutely hilarious. I don't drink coffee. No smoking, no coffee. No, never, never had a cigarette? Never had a cup of coffee? Don't drink, don't smoke. Um, well, drink other stuff, just oh, not okay. coffee. Oh, okay. No coffee. Gotcha. <laughs> so, um, so that was my first show, and I remember it was a glass table, which was the only thing that prevented me from throwing up. Because <laughs> I remember thinking, if you puke on this table... It's just gonna skitter. Skit, It'll right, be going disgusting. Larry's lap and my lap all over myself. Right, it was just. You were it, great though. Uh, you know, my father-in-law, who's no longer with us, was the only person who was honest with me. What did he say? I, so I go back into the office the next day. Thunderous applause, or at least that's how I remember it. <laughs> there were five hundred bros standing ovation. It was just great, and everybody, my supervisor and the head of the, everybody loved. So I call Harry. So Harry, what'd you think? I don't know. You looked kind of nervous. You, you would, your lips were dry. You were smacking. Uh, so every time, this is absolutely true. Every time I, the first three or four times I did television, everybody loved it. And Harry was the only guy giving me the straight dope. Did he finally warm so up So by the fifth or sixth appearance, how was that? He goes, I have to tell you, you looked very comfortable. You were articulate. You sounded like you knew it. That was That's a really good- That's when you good knew ap- you made it. That was when I said, oh, okay. okay. So I really appreciated him not sugarcoating it. You got to work a little bit. You you looked very uncomfortable. All right, I guess I got to I got to work on that. So this isn't about me though. This is supposed to be about you. You were the there at the first, and I remember thinking, God, she is just so smooth and effortless. Can I tell you the best tip I got ever? That I have I've it's always in my mind when I do something like this mm-hmm. or I do a TV appearance or I get up in front of a room came from Louis Rukeyser. Oh really? So the very first time I was on the show was as a guest. So I was doing the 10 minute interview after the discussion around the table right. with the panel. Where were you working at the time? Um at at, at Zwig Avatar. Mm-hmm. And I had not met Lou before. I was a huge fan, but I had not met him. And just before he came out to do his monologue, I was behind the scenes, and that was when I met him, literally for the first time. Shook hands. He said, thank you for being on the show. Are you nervous? I said, a little bit. He said, uh, and he asked me what I thought was an an odd question at the time, a two-part question. He said, are your parents still alive? Are they still with us? I said, yes. He said, are they in the business? I said, "Uh, television business, finance? He said, no, your business. Are Are they Wall Street people? I said, no, 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 far from it. My, my, my mom was largely a stay-at-home mom. She had some jobs, but not certainly not in finance. And my dad was an ad sales uh, person for a trade magazine. He grabbed both of my um, elbows and said, okay, I want you to do me a favor. When you come out here to do the interview with me, get them to understand what you're talking about. And I have always taken that to heart because I think even though what we do is fairly complicated, what's mm-hmm. going on in the world is often fairly complicated – there is a way to explain it and talk about it to investors that is much less complicated. And I, I find that the people who have come up to me and said, thank you for speaking in, in plain English and not using a lot of jargon and making it easier to understand. More often than not, those are people on the more sophisticated end of the spectrum than really? they are on the lesser end. And I find I'm almost 30 years in this business now. To me, there's nothing that's more of a turnoff than when I hear somebody get up on stage or on TV that wants to sound like the smartest guy in the room and is throwing all sorts of jargon and they're very mm-hmm. William F. Buckley-like in their, in the way they speak. And 
I, I just much more appreciate somebody who just speaks in, in plain English, doesn't try to get overly flowery in the language. And, and I, I, that's always in the back of my mind. Okay, get, your, get mom and dad to understand what you're talking it's fu- about. It's funny you say that because my mother is now retired, was a real estate agent. My wife is an art teacher. And that's the same concept in my head. That's my target Well, you audience. do the same thing. Speak you... to mom, speak to yep. my wife. So neither of them in the business, although my mom was kind of a, she's the one who first turned me on to equities. Okay, so she was an, years she's ago. an investor. Uh, she was an investor in the 80s and, um, and, and 90s. And, but she was really, she was a real estate agent by profession. That was what, what she did. So the issue was always get her to t- understand these complex economic issues or the sentiment issues or any of the technical issues, if you could get somebody who's not a Wall Street professional to get it, hey, then everybody should be able to understand Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So in the last few minutes we have, and I'm, I'm really enjoying these digressions, but I know uh, our time is only finite. Let me ask you a few of the standard questions mm-hmm. I, I like to ask people. Um and there are a whole bunch of other questions. So we discussed investing books. We discussed investors. We uh, mentors and who the other investors were. So, so let me ask you uh, these last two questions. Mm, I really don't love that question, and I don't like this question. We, uh, you know, can I tell you something? I write all these questions down and have just having a conversation. We, we probably we, covered we work a lot of our it, way right? through. Sure. So there are two questions I always ask people, okay. and, and let me give you these. The first one is: We've seen a whole lot of changes over the past. You're 29 years in the market. Everything from decimalization to market crashes to uh, high frequency trading. What sort of shifts do you see coming in the not too distant future that you think are significant for investors? Thinking over the next several years, so call it a medium-term uh, time horizon, I, I think we will continue to see greater access to a variety of asset classes, so further democratization of investing uh, for many individuals. I think whether it's through ETFs or, or other avenues through which individuals can take almost an endowment approach to mm-hmm. their own portfolios and further moving away from that traditional stocks, bonds, cash. But I also think we're in a period of likely uh, greater volatility in those asset classes. So not necessarily a smooth ride for investors trying to navigate that, which means that I hope there's an additional place for education. And we're also at Schwab, we are big proponents of investor education. And I would like to see more coming down the pike on that front. And I'm not just talking about seminars for investors of of an older age. I actually wrote a letter to the principal of my kid's high school. My my son's now out of high school. My daughter's in high school. Um, Just asking whether they had ever considered having some sort of course, not in the stock market, but something that I would call life economics. Personal finance. How absurd is it that at that level or even before, we don't teach the basics of how a credit card works and how compound interest works and how to balance a checkbook and how taxes are taken out of our paycheck? I'm all for the arts, and I love when my daughter has to do a map of what ancient Greece looked like. But I think, shouldn't that also be in conjunction with the way money works in our economy, uh, you know, we what a 401k is, what an IRA is, 
all these basic things that that, w- that we sort of get thrown to the wolves. So I would like to see we're we're as a firm sort of on a mission because it's it's a, it's a big part of what we do at, at Schwab, but I'd like to see that become more pervasive so that we start the education about money at a much younger age than we do now. That, so that's my longer term hope. That that's really fascinating. That's um you know we talk about the lack of civics you know, there used to be something known mm-hmm. as civics. Sure. Here's how you learn how to be a citizen. And in a complex modern world, here's how you learn how to handle your own money. Exactly. That would be a, fa- a fantastic uh It should, a fantastic be, it should be a required course, at least in high school. So we're going to have to nominate you for the Board of Education. No, That's, no, thank uh, you. No politics. <laughs> and so the last question I, I always ask people, and th- I get a variety of really interesting responses, but let's see. Yours is, so what do you know today about investing, markets, finance, that you wish you knew when you started your career? I think I wish I truly knew, even though when I started my career, it was working for somebody that spent a lot of time focusing on the behavioral side of markets and crowd psychology and the sentiment around peaks and valleys in the market. It's not until now that I realized that that really matters more than anything else. And if you can figure that out, you can maybe not nail perfectly tops and bottoms, but that I think is is generally what keeps you on the right side of things. And which often means as as someone who's doing the investing, you know, we, mm-hmm. we, we observe the world of investing, but we're also investors. Um, some of the best decisions are often some of the most uncomfortable ones. So I, I, I wish I would have understood. I think I probably would have be, made better calls and decisions around the peak in 2000 mm-hmm. uh, than I did. Um, but it certainly helped me in some of the more recent inflection points in the market. Liz, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. This, you. this has really been great. For those of you who are joining us late, I don't know how that's possible, <laughs> um, at Liz Ann Saunders or schwab.com for all of the various commentary, research, analysis she puts out. If you enjoy this conversation, you're probably looking at it on iTunes. So look up an inch or down an inch and you'll see the rest of uh, the series. This may actually be the 40th show we've done. We started almost a year ago. Cool. And um, you may be lucky number 40. I wish I was only 40 to be celebrating. That's right. When you said 29, I'm like, you're 29? You look uh, (laughs) a year or two older than 29. (laughs) Just you look, a year or two. You look fantastic for whatever age you are at. So <laughs> Thank you, Barry. That's, um, I'm going to stop there before I <laughs> dig a hole. Um, you've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. I want to thank Charles Vollmer, my engineer, Michael Batnick, my head of research. Uh, I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Mm-hmm.